Good morning, everyone. It's that time of year again where Keith pulls out the Christmas ties, so I enjoy this time to be able to do that. Uh, back in 2013, I was able to get away from life and duties at the church in Michigan and go on kind of an extended vacation a little bit. So the first church that I ministered in was in Massachusetts, and I had not been back to Massachusetts at that point for 15 years. So I was excited to go back and see all of my former kids who are no longer kids. They're actually introducing me to their children, which there's a means of feeling old right there. Uh, but that was reason number one to go back to New England. I also had a student from the church in Michigan who was playing Division I volleyball out in Connecticut. So there was reason number two to take the long drive to New England. Then, my family history research also led me back to New England, which was a fun trip, by the way. Um, so that was reason number three to make that long trip all the way out to New England from Michigan. Now, two of the places that my family history trip took me to is kind of downtown in Boston. One was right at the Boston Library, which when I popped up there, I did not realize just months before that was where the Boston bombing had taken place. So I was at the library, and then there was another spot about 15, or excuse me, about five minute walk away called the New England Historical Genealogical Society. Try saying that five times fast. Um, Anyway, one day while I was there, after lunch, I ran across this church that is right on, the area of town is called Copley Square. So it's right on the square. Uh, name of the church is Trinity Church, old historic church. Um, it was absolutely beautiful architecture on the outside. Awesome stone walls, oak doors, variety of levels. Uh, I was also able to get inside and see everything inside as well. And the church had a grandeur that... Um, was true of its day. Basically, when you enter a church in that time, the ceilings were high to give you this sense of awe of who God was, um, which is just kind of an awesome feeling. We don't have that nowadays. But um, it was just a beautiful sight through all the, throughout the whole church. Outside the church stands a statue of one of the ministers. And he was actually the minister who helped oversee the building of that particular church building. The previous church had burnt down in the Great Fire of Boston. Minister's name was Phillips Brooks. Uh, I did not think much more about the church or about that man, um, other than the fact that I walked away from Boston with some really cool photos. Until about a year later when I was preparing a message or sermon for church, and I ran across yet another Christmas story. So, it begins back with Phillips Brooks. He was born in Boston, uh, 1825, educated at Harvard, and upon graduation, Brooks took a job teaching at Boston's Latin School. Brooks did not do real well there. He struggled in teaching the students there because he felt like they did not have the dedication to be able to learn Latin with the passion that he had for it. So he left that position, and he was rather disheartened by all of this and very discouraged, and it kind of left him feeling like, where's my place in the world? What am I going to do? So he turned to prayer and Bible study. And in that process, he uh, realized and felt led that he needed to go to seminary to become a pastor. 
So after graduating, he led a couple small congregations around the Philadelphia area until 1861. 1861, he was asked to be the minister of a well-known church in Philadelphia that still stands there today, also called Trinity Church. And this is where he found his true calling. Uh, while he didn't succeed in the classroom with the Latin students, he excelled in preaching. His messages were very engaging. They were cheerful. They were full of energy. And they were dramatic. He became a very well-known preacher in America, which is saying an awful lot because there's no TV and no internet back in that day. Now, Phillips Rooks himself was a big man, six foot eight to be exact. He was described as a giant of a man, but he was a gentle giant. He had a big heart that both young and old were uh, gravitated toward. And it was said that he had toys in his office so that when the children would come by and visit, uh, he would have those there. And he said it was not an uncommon sight to see him sitting on the floor playing games with the kids. Now, he never did marry, so he really felt like a second father to a lot of those children. Now, I mentioned that he began at Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia um, in 1862. So he was 1861. But his fame uh, spread, and his physical and spiritual well-being, though, were starting to go downhill. Uh, Brooks was pastoring in the time of the Civil War, and there was basically almost no one in the church that was not touched by someone being injured in the Civil War or someone having died in the Civil War that they knew, either family or friends. So women walking around in black and mourning was basically a common sight during that time. Brooks tried and tried to bring inspiration and hope, but the, uh, the bleak pallor brought on by a nation at war uh, being torn apart was just wearing Brooks down. When the war ended, when it was announced, Brooks was visibly worn out, but he had hope for the future that it was going to return to normal and peace and hope would be coming back. But sadly, things only got worse. Um, less than a week after the end of the war was announced, President Abraham Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater. And even though he was not Lincoln's pastor, Brooks was called upon one more time to try and bring hope to a very hopeless nation at that point. Uh, he did not feel prepared to be thrust onto the national stage, uh, even, honestly, the international stage at that point. So he had to dig really deep to try and find what he needed to be able to console a nation at that point. After the funeral, Brooks was so drained and so broken and discouraged and hopeless, he needed something uh, to bring his life back, to bring vitality back and hope back to his life and to his ministry. Now, most of us have not faced these particular conditions. However, we have all probably faced moments of hopelessness like this in life. Circumstances or conditions around us that have pushed us to the very edge where we thought we would never, ever find ourselves at. We have felt lost, discouraged, afraid, and hopeless. Today we're going to look at the nation of Israel and some of the desperate circumstances that Israel found themselves in. 
They had lived through war, and they were only being discouraged by that war. But the fact that they were, um, uh, in fact, they were taken captive uh, in the midst of all of that. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at the first five verses, starting with verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand a double blessing for all of her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall be made, become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, a little background to get us started. Uh, hopelessness comes from a couple different areas. It comes from both sin in our lives, but it also can come from circumstance or the fact that we simply live in a broken world and things happen around us. Now, quick background on the history of Israel. Uh, Israel, most of us know Israel is one nation, but there was a time in their history that they split into two. 930 BC, they split into two different nations. One maintained that same name. Israel in the north um, was still known by that name, Israel, and the southern kingdom was known by the name of Judah. Now, Isaiah is writing about 200 years after the nation splits. So from about 740 to around 690 B.C. is when Isaiah's ministry was. Israel had about 200 years of division from one another. And they also had all kinds of problems with the nations around them, wars, invasions, all kinds of things that were taking place during that time in history. Now most prophets would write to either the southern kingdom or to the northern kingdom. Uh, Isaiah, being a major prophet, which major prophets basically mean they're verbose. They have a lot to say. Uh, their books are longer than any of the others. Isaiah's major prophet, he actually speaks to both the north and the south, but his primary focus, his primary ministry is in the, in the south. And at that time, the Assyrian Empire is the one that was becoming dominant. Egypt was going downhill, Assyria was coming up, and they were becoming a very strong power in, uh, in the world at that time. Now, Isaiah had been prophesying judgment for the first 39 chapters in his book. Judgment, the hopelessness that came with it, is all coming because of the sin of Israel. Uh, Israel had no love for God anymore. They did not fear God the way they should have. The people were chasing after basically every idol, every false God that they found. Uh, the people did not trust God to protect them from foreign powers. There's stories of them making pacts with the other nations around them because they didn't trust God. There's no justice in the land. So Israel and Judah have been filling the goblet of God's judgment for a very, very long time. In fact, the kingdom of Assyria took the northern kingdom of Israel captive in 721 during the time period of Isaiah's ministry. So Isaiah is warning the southern kingdom of Judah that if you do not change your ways, the same thing is going to wind up happening to you. And in fact, God did do that 
in 586, about 120 years later, 140 years later, uh, the next world power, Babylon, is coming in and they took the southern kingdom captive. So hopelessness had or has become or come to Israel because their worlds are being and will be shattered because Isaiah is predicting all of this and when we are reading in the book of Isaiah. They were going to wind up watching their land and their loved ones and everything that they cared about being destroyed. Their family members, their friends, all of it. They're going to see people killed. All this stuff is going to be happening. So they were taken from their land to a foreign land with different rules, different values, different customs, and a different language. And when you get to the book of Jeremiah, uh, after the southern kingdom had been taken into uh, captivity, Jeremiah basically tells them, or God tells them through Jeremiah, uh, guys, make yourself at home because you're going to be in captivity for a while, which has got to be discouraging when you are hoping that God is going to come and deliver you. They felt cut off from their land, which back in that day, we don't understand it quite as much, but back in that day, that was a huge part of the blessing of God is the land. So that was a huge thing to them. They felt cut off from the future that they thought that they had. They thought that they were God's true people and nothing bad was ever going to happen. And because they did not listen, they didn't understand what was coming. They felt cut off from God himself. So the world is being shattered. And some of it, of course, is not entirely their own doing, but a lot of it is. So this has been the message of Isaiah in chapters 1 through 39. Judgment for sin. Judgment is in your future. Judgment is coming. So you can imagine the mood that that sets. Israel is still in love with their sin and does not want to give that up. Yet, judgment is still looming. It is coming. All they have known is war with other nations around them. The mood is bleak, depressing, and hopeless. Then we get to Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah 40, he starts announcing the good news that is going to be coming. Starting in chapter 40, all of the hope and the good news that Isaiah is now revealing through, or that God is revealing through Isaiah, would be more correct, is all now pointing to Isaiah chapter 53, or the suffering servant that we all know today as Christ, the Messiah. Let me point something out that's interesting, and you've probably heard this, but I'll tell you it again. Uh, the Bible has 66 books in it. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Old Testament has 39 books in it. Uh, and a lot of people feel that the Old Testament is a little maybe more depressing than, say, the New Testament. First 39 chapters of Isaiah have all been about judgment, have all been probably more on the depressing end of the scale. New Testament, 27 books in it. There's 27 books left to the book, or left to Isaiah's book. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 begins with the announcement of comfort because the old life is leaving. It's done, and God is now going to be bringing new life and a new hope to those who are hopeless. The beginning of the New Testament opens with the announcements of new life, new hope coming to mankind. So Isaiah and the New Testament are very parallel in that way. So the first thing I want you to see as we're in Isaiah chapter 40 is the announcement of hope. This comes to the first two, two verses. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, after all the announcements of judgment, God turns the corner and wants to bring comfort and hope to a bruised, battered, and hopeless people. And there is a lot to be comforted with in the first two verses. God starts out and he commands three things. He says, comfort, speak, and proclaim. That's our, ver- um, our verbs in there. So think about it. Comfort is really speaking to someone's heart. It's saying, come alongside that person, put your arm around them, share in their emotions, bring them comfort. Don't just talk in general, but bring them comfort. Empathize with them. Sit in their misery in some respects because of what's going on. But bring that comfort that they need. Then he says, speak. And you would think that that means here's the words you say, but it really means the manner in which they're delivered. He says, speak tenderly. So when you're coming along to comfort, you're not just bringing dry words. You are speaking tenderly. You're speaking to their heart about what is taking place. Then it says proclaim, and this is the actual words of the message. The words that are going to be bringing comfort as a result. Now there's also words of tenderness from God to his people. God calls them my people. Now if you've just been taken captive and you've been hanging out in a foreign land for the last number of years... You feel like God has abandoned you, and then you hear the words, you are my people. Think about how that's going to make you feel. You realize that God has not abandoned you. God still says that you are his people. It is a reminder that even in the face of all their sin, that they are going to be, or the the sin that they're going to be judged for, God is not abandoning them. He has not, and he will not abandon them. Obviously, God wants this message to be delivered with that tenderness. He knows how much they have gone through and how much they need all of this. But there's also the message itself. What God says, here's the message, so proclaim this to Israel. Her service is complete. Her sins are paid for. Now, That one's pretty obvious. Your sins are paid for. Everything is done. This is looking at the time beyond the time that they're going to be captives to the day when God is going to be bringing them back to their land. The time for them to be punished is now done. And God is going to be bringing them back. And by the way, difference between good parenting and bad parenting. Good parenting. When your kid does something wrong... You might have to do punishment, but then your kids still welcome back, right? You still love them. You still care about them. And this is God in these moments. He is displaying for us the heart of a parent. He is simply saying, you know what? Yeah, you messed up and I had to do some hardcore love on you guys, but I still love you and I haven't rejected you. Then we get to the part, he says, she receives a double, um, she has received double for all of her sins. Now, it sounds a little confusing because God just simply said, hey, you are forgiven of all of your sins. Now you're going to get double for all your sins. And it makes it sound like more judgment is coming. 
but the Hebrew construction is a little bit on the weird side, and the word double can apply to either punishment or blessing. And given the context, most commentators, most interpreters refer to this or believe that it is referring to the blessing. So God is now saying, because your sins have been paid for, because the punishment has been accomplished, because it did what I needed it to do, you are going to receive a double blessing. And most likely this double blessing is coming in the form of you're now receiving the forgiveness of sins and now you're going to be restored. You're coming back to the land. You're going home, folks. You're not going to have to be there any longer. So the chapter starts out with this incredible announcement that is bringing hope to people who have been crushed uh, by the weight of their own sin and by the punishment that God had to give because of it. But the second thing we see is the preparation of hope in verses 3 and 4. It says, A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. Uh, This section has kind of two advocates on both sides of a fence here uh, about why the preparations are being made. And the debate is over what direction are they going to be moving on, or what direction and who's moving on the road, basically. So are the people in exile preparing the way for the Lord to come and get them, or are the people preparing the way for them to return? Now, it sounds like a finite difference, but there is a huge thing. Um, I'm going to give you my reasoning and what I think here. I believe it is the first option that it is God who is coming to get them. And here's why I believe that. First of all, the preparation for smoothing the road or leveling, leveling the mountains is never spoken of in a literal sense. So in other words, when Israel returned from captivity to their own homeland, they didn't have a smooth path. They still had to walk the roads that were there. It was, there was no physical thing of them coming back in that way. But the preparation also seems to be tied to the forgiveness, the repentance on their part, because the forgiveness had been accomplished from what they were doing. It was tied together. Their sin had been what is keeping them from the land because God was punishing them. And now because the sin is gone, now because it has been paid for, they are able to return. Uh, Also says the way is being prepared for the Lord. Now, it's a little ambiguous, so it could go both ways. But in ancient times, and you probably heard this one, uh, when the king would be coming, when royalty would be coming, they would literally go out and smooth the roads and make it a simple way for the king to be arriving. So it makes sense that it would be God arriving to his people to be bringing them back to the land. Um, Final reason why I believe this is that this is what God does all the time, right? God comes to us to rescue us from our sinful stupidity, right? Or God comes to rescue us from the circumstances of life because we live in a broken and a fallen world. It's not us that fixes all of this. It's God who is the one who is fixing it for us. 
So preparation is really preparing for God to be arriving. It is a repenting of sin. It is a call to be ready for God's glory, which you're going to see in the next verse. This is a preparation of hope. Hope comes from us recognizing sin, turning from it, and embracing God. Hope comes from the idea that we will see God's glory. And hope comes from God himself. We don't create hope. We only prepare for the glory and the hope that God is going to be bringing and revealing to us. So we've seen the announcement of hope. We've seen the preparation of hope. And now we're going to be looking at the consummation of hope. It says in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. After years of judgment, this passage is looking forward to the time after the judgment when God is going to bring people, or comfort to his people. And the ultimate comfort that God can bring uh, is his very presence, is his glory. So this verse seems to be relating to something just a little larger than the Jews returning from exile. Now, there is no doubt that the glory of the Lord would be displayed in them coming back home out of being in captivity. And we even know that the nations around Israel did take notice of what took place that God had brought them home. But it does seem to be wider than that. It is fully possible that this could be referring to the coming of Jesus the first time. After all, um, the beginning of this chapter, the whole focus is on Christ's coming. However, all of that is a little mixed together of Christ coming the first time or Christ coming the second time. And that's why the Jews got a little confused. What's most likely probably in view uh, is maybe the first and second coming intermingled, or excuse me, what's probably in view, skip my notes, is the second coming of Christ itself. It is the ultimate fulfillment of the plan, the consummation of God's glory, greater than it's ever been seen before. And this is what the hope would have been, uh, what the people would have been hoping for. This point in history, the temple had been destroyed. So the glory of God had been removed. It actually was removed long before the temple was destroyed. Uh, they no doubt were hoping that God had not forgotten them and that one day they would see the glory of God again, the glory of God return to Israel. And in fact, later in the chapter, you hear them saying this, that they believe that God has left them. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, which by the way, O Jacob is a synonym for the nation of Israel. I can explain that, but we'll go on. Uh, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. Basically, Israel is saying, God doesn't even see us, doesn't even look at us anymore. And even if God did, he doesn't care about us. He doesn't care about our plight. He doesn't care about what's taking place with us. He doesn't care about our circumstances. We mean nothing to him. Kind of the mood, that's kind of where they're at. But God is promising them that they are not forgotten. That God will reveal his glory again um, in the future. And because of that, they are to be comforted. And we know it's going to happen 
because Isaiah finishes this verse with these words. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, all you parents in the room, I need you to be honest and I need you to raise your hands on this one. How many of you have ever finished a conversation with your children with the phrase, because I said so? <laughs> I've done it with the youth group before. That's the final word of a conversation, right? At least if your child is smart, that is the final word of a conversation. <laughs> You are proclaiming your authority over that situation. It's just like the judge who gives that final sentence when he grabs that gavel and says, not guilty, and slams that gavel down. That's the end of the conversation. So when it says that the mouth of the Lord has spoken, what's going to happen is going to be exactly what God says it's going to happen. Whatever he just described, that is what's going to be true. So... We've looked at the announcement of hope, we've looked at the preparation of hope, and the consummation of hope, but the title of the sermon is Hope on Repeat, so what about that? I'm glad y'all asked. Uh, I have little doubt that in days gone by, you were probably out scooping the loop at some point in your life, right? Uh, I had to ask what that meant because I had no idea. In Chicago, we just called it driving around. <laughs> I will say that your title for it is much more colorful and much more fun. We don't have a lot of creativity in Chicago. Anyway, while you're out scooping the loop, you're probably driving around with that favored eight track. And yes, I do remember eight tracks, by the way. Never had one, but I do remember them. Your favorite 8-track, your favorite cassette, your favorite CD in the player, and you probably wound up having that on repeat as you drove around because it's your favorite thing and you loved listening to it. What I want to show you is this hope on repeat in Scripture. The longer you go and the more you read the Bible, you are going to see this. You're going to see the gospel of hope again and again and again. Um, this idea that man sins, God is desperate, or excuse me, God sees their desperate situation, and then God sends a deliverer. And it's all throughout the Bible. You cannot get away from it. If you ever wanted to know how to take a story in Scripture and relate it back to Jesus so that you can share Christ with someone, pay careful attention, okay? Let me show you a few stories to give you an example. The story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are living in a perfect world, and they have perfect fellowship with God. Slow down and imagine that for just a second. How awesome would that be? Now, we all know what happens. Eve and Adam mess up, right? Uh, and I say that because the Bible was very clear, Adam was with Eve. And I'm going to go on my soapbox over here for just a second and tell you this. This is my personal contention as to why God has asked men to be in the lead of their homes and in the church. Eve was there. They had one command that they needed to follow. Eve was there being tempted by the fruit. Adam was there and he stayed silent. God asked him and said, you need to, you only have one rule. That's it. Don't eat that fruit. And you didn't step up, spiritually speaking, and care for your wife. I do believe that's why God is now saying, gentlemen, it's time to kick it in gear. We are supposed to be the ones leading on a spiritual basis. 
Now I'm off my soapbox to get back to the sermon. We all know what happened with Adam and Eve. They ate the fruit. They got themselves into a major mess. Move ahead to the story of Noah. Uh, The people had gotten to a place where the Bible describes it as this. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. Think about that phrase. Every inclination of their thoughts of their heart was only evil all the time. We think this world is evil. We got to have some sort of redeeming quality because we haven't hit this level yet. Okay? Obviously, man has disobeyed God and has brought judgment on himself in the days of Noah. The book of Judges, uh, it contains stories about Gideon and Samson and some of those folks that we remember. The book has a theme running throughout the whole thing. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they'd be walking with God for a little while, and then they'd be tempted, and they'd go following after the wrong things once again. And the nation of Israel would disobey. They'd get themselves into a mess again. Fast forward again. The book of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi find themselves in desperate circumstances. And the circumstances were not of their doing, which is exactly why I made sure I included this story in this list. Because not every hopeless situation is a result of our own sin. Some hopeless situations are a result of the fact that we live in a sinful world. We didn't do the sin, but because there is sin in the world, we still get affected by it. So Ruth and Naomi are in desperate circumstances, and they are in need of hope. Hope is what all of these people receive again and again and again. And you'll see it in all the stories in Scripture. In the book of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, desperate circumstances, and the Lord provides a deliverer for those circumstances in the person of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. We've talked about Ruth in the past here at the church, um, and it's a rather famous story, but that is who their deliverer is. The book of Judges. Every time the nation of Israel does what is right in their own eyes, they get themselves into major trouble. And that major trouble was normally in the form of an invading army or invading people. And each time God would send a judge or a deliverer to help pull them out of the mess that they were in. So I'll give you this as an example. Samson, hardly a role model to follow. The man was a womanizer. The man had breathtaking anger issues. But he was called upon as a judge by God. And he came in and he kicked out the Philistines out of the nation of Israel as they were coming back, as they were pleading for God to help them. And this happened over and over again in the book of Judges. Each time Israel got themselves into a mess, God sent another deliverer in the form of a judge to rescue the people. The story of Noah. Humanity had stopped, um, excuse me, had gotten so far out of line, God basically had to turn them over to their own devices. He did not make them sin, nor was he powerless to stop them from sinning, other than the fact that God has given us free will. But he's not going to force people to love him. So all of these folks, evidently, God was probably pleading with them at some point, saying, please follow me. And they just kept tearing after sin like nobody's business. And God finally said, all right, I'm going to get out your way. 
You go do your thing. And that's how why they got to where they were. But God sent another deliverer in the form of, and this should ring bells, an obedient servant named Noah. Just like we had an obedient servant named Christ who went to the cross. Noah obeyed God's plan, which in the end provided deliverance for humanity. Jesus uh, obeyed God's plan, which provided deliverance for humanity. Finally, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God and got themselves in deep. God provided compassion by meeting their needs, so he delivered them from the immediate circumstances. But after doing punishment with them, he also provided them hope for a permanent uh, deliverer and said, there is going to be a day that someone is coming who is going to deliver your descendants and he's going to do it perfectly. Again, pointing toward Christ. This is hope on repeat in the Bible. Back to our text. We see hope that God is offering to his people yet again. They're going to be in exile, taken captivity by a foreign nation, held for 70 years. One year for every uh, Sabbath year that they did not recognize. Sabbath year is this. God said every seventh year, you let the land rest. Now, if you do your math on this, that means 490 years they did not listen to God and let the land rest. So God said, look, you guys have been messing up all this time. We're taking you away. Um, even though they were in exile, God had not and would not forget them. There would be a Savior coming, and eventually this Savior is going to be the one who ultimately saves the nation and displays the glory of God to all of humanity. This is where the Jews got the idea that Jesus was supposed to usher in the kingdom because they are mixing the comings of Christ together. They didn't realize that Jesus had to fulfill his job as the suffering servant first. And then the kingdom would come later on in its full glory. Now, let me show you one more time uh, how this text connects Advent and Christmas together. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the wilderness in the wilderness, a highway for our God. Fast forward, John chapter 1, verses 27 and 20, or excuse me, 22 and 23. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is being interrogated about who he really is. He replies with the words of Isaiah that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness to make ready the way for the Lord. He is announcing that the Lord is coming. After 400 years of silence, in which time the Jews have done a great job of perverting the religious system, uh, they have added all kinds of extra laws. They have not really been following exactly what God said. They have had hypocritical leaders. They have had all kinds of issues growing within the nation. They are now being occupied by Rome. 
most have either forgotten or think that the Messiah is kind of mythical or think all kinds of different things about the Messiah. They've messed up what the Messiah is supposed to be. They are sitting in a desperate set of circumstances after this 400 years in need of the light of hope. And John arrives on the scene and says, you know what? I'm the messenger for God, and I'm here to announce that the king is coming. Again, the people found themselves in desperate times and in need of hope, and the hope can only come through the, a deliverer or a savior in the Messiah. God sends that deliverer, and this time that deliverer is for keeps. This deliverer is not a temporary deliverer. He is permanent. He did not come to merely deliver the people from a temporary set of circumstances or a system of atonement that was going to not solve their sin problems and keep them in that loop. He came to deliver them from their eternal circumstances to a system of redemption that was going to be permanent. Isaiah 40 is largely about uh, the second coming of Christ. But again, allow me to meld these uh, advents together one last time. When you hitch your train to Jesus in the first advent, you recognize who he was because of the first advent, you are going to be riding that train all the way to the second advent. John is announcing the first coming. Isaiah is really talking about the second coming. When you accept the hope offered in Jesus in his first coming, you are able to enjoy the hope of his second coming. This hope continues to be on repeat all throughout the Bible, covering both advents and offered to each and every one of us. If we will accept it and trust what Jesus has done the first time by dying on the cross to save us from our sins. After the funeral of Abraham Lincoln, Phillips Brooks was given a sabbatical from his church to rest and recover. His church would see the wear and tear on Brooks over the years uh, from the Civil War, and they wanted to see their pastor whole again. So Brooks, uh, on his sabbatical, went to Europe. He went to the Middle East, and eventually he wound up going to Israel. He spent two weeks in Jerusalem, visiting and contemplating the sites where the events of Jesus' life took place. On Christmas Eve, he wanted to get away from all of the visitors in Jerusalem um, for some time alone to meditate on all the things that he had seen and on the night of Jesus' birth. So he attended church services at the Old Bethlehem Church. And here's what he wrote about the experience. I remember especially on Christmas Eve when I was standing in the old church in Bethlehem close to the spot where Jesus was born when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with the splendid hymns of praise of God. He was being reminded of all these things as he's standing there worshiping God in the church. Now he's being in the, or he's in the town of Jesus' birth, and Brooks was able to imagine in vivid detail all of the passages about the birth of Christ at that time. All of, his, uh, all of this left Brooks speechless. He's standing on the streets that are largely unchanged from biblical times. Uh, it was as if he could feel the very spirit of Christmas, the first Christmas there. And passing the spot where the shepherds may have been, being close to where Jesus was born, all of this wound up being very difficult for Brooks to be able to convey to other people. And what Brooks did not know 
uh, excuse me, what Brooks, Brooks did know is brought, um, excuse me, Brooks did know it is brought to a renewed sense of hope uh, in his life. The fatigue that he once bore in his body and in his life and his soul had been lifted by the one who delivered all of mankind. And he returned home with a renewed sense of passion and hope. He continued to struggle how to tell this story uh, of renewal from Christ um, to his congregation and especially to the kids that he loved in his Sunday school class. Until Brooks wrote a poem for his Sunday school class. And he rushed the poem to the organist who finally understood the hope that flooded Brooks' life that Christmas Eve while he was in Bethlehem. He took it to the organist, Louis Redner, and uh, Redner finally understood it and set it all to music. And that is now the Christmas carol that we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. This is Hope on Repeat. The Bible repeats the gospel of hope. The prophet Isaiah and John the Baptist announced the coming of hope. Phillips Brooks in Christ's birth rediscovered the hope. Jesus fulfilled the predictions of hope. Jesus will bring his kingdom to earth to complete the hope. And so I leave you with a question. Is your hope found in the only source worth considering? Is your hope found in Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Um, thank you for your word and thank you for how it guides us, how it instructs us, uh, but most of all, Lord, how it brings us hope as we can see um, the gospel repeated over and over and over in all these different stories. Lord, we pray that we would be taking um, encouragement from that, taking hope from that, uh, realizing what it is that you do for us on a regular basis. Lord, we pray that we would take this hope into our own hearts if we have not yet, but Lord, also to take this hope outside these doors and go share it with others. Let them know about the hope that they can have in you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.